you're about to get lucky with the Bare Naked Money Podcast, the show that gives you the naked truth about personal finance with your hosts, Josh Shellick, Portfolio Manager with WLWP Wealth Planners IA Private Wealth, and Colin White, Portfolio Manager with Varican Capital Management, Inc. Welcome to the next episode of Bare Naked Money. Colin and Josh here. We're I'm, I'm leaving this off because I don't think I'm going to get to too much talking because Josh has prepared a podcast to assault all of my firmly held beliefs and to convince me that I'm wrong. So I, I've always personally said that I keep really, really firm opinions right up until somebody changes them. I think Josh is going to take a run at changing some of those opinions. Now, I'm not sure how fulsome his effort is going to be because he doesn't seem to be confident, but he is going to argue the other side of some things. I don't even know what they are. So... I'm as excited as everybody else to hear how this podcast goes. Well, I'm always confident. I'm always confident when I put together a well-thought-out argument. But we're coming at this from an approach that we we often will take, where not only will we challenge the conventional wisdom, but we'll, we'll challenge our, I guess we could call it, um, you said firmly held beliefs. It's never that firm because to your point, we're always trying to to change our minds for whatever reason. But things that we're fairly convinced of, I guess we could call it. Yeah. Well, I mean, but, but at the end of the day, when you reach a conclusion, you have to convince and walk in a direction. So and I think that that's the important part. We, you know, we, we will come to a conclusion and say, okay, yeah, this is our conclusion. So this is the direction we're going to go. So that, that, that's a level of confidence. And maybe firmly held beliefs doesn't mean it can't be changed. Sure. It just means that it's, it's the direction that we're willing to walk in until somebody proves us wrong. Yeah. And, and I'm attacking this because I think just as a, as a whole, society, the workplace, the financial industry, especially, we're, we're too stuck on our, our currently held beliefs. I was listening to a sports podcast yesterday, and the guy was talking about Shohei Otani, who's turning in one of the most miraculous seasons of all time in baseball. And he was talking about how when Otani first came to the MLB, his first impression was this guy can't hit. Two weeks later, he changed his mind and said I was wrong, which is incredibly rare for somebody to come to come to conclusion, take in more information in such a short amount of time and then change their opinion, especially publicly. So. Anyway, I got a few things to challenge you on, Colin. I think you'll like them. I can't wait. And for those who have accused us of being scripted, this is so unscripted. So editing may make this sound better. But uh, this is the real deal, Josh. Let's see okay. if let's see if I can let's see if I can respond. So my first challenge to you is that real estate in Canada is undervalued, significantly undervalued, actually. Reasons why? Well, immigration, maybe you've heard, we're adding about a half a million people a year in Canada to immigration. Half a million people that are coming in that are educated with money, that want to live in cities, that want to buy houses, and they have the means to do so. Half a million people a year added to our population is going to drive up demand. Like I said, these people want to go to cities. Cities are where we have sort of our highest valued real estate today. And that could easily, easily push those higher, high, those high values even higher just through that increase in demand. 
But not only do we have an increased demand, we still have a constrained supply. And as much as we could say we're going to keep building and building and building more and more buildings, more and more residences, we've already been on a pace that's, that's elevated over the last decade. Construction has already been very strong. And you can say, well, what about places outside of the cities? Well, where are people going to go when they move outside of the cities? We're seeing that right now. You're seeing that on the East Coast. People are moving from larger cities to smaller cities, and that's driving up prices in those smaller cities. So I would say over the next 10 years, we're going to see a significant increase in the value of Canadian real estate. And that means it's, it's significantly undervalued today. Wow, you're so wrong. <laughs> you are so, Josh, this is too easy. You've equated number of people with demand. That number of people does not create demand. You said more people is going to drive up demand for Canadian housing. Is what you said. Sure. If those people don't have two nickels to rub together, that but that the, that's you. You did not listen. Speaking, they do have two nickels to whoa, rub whoa, together. Whoa, whoa, whoa. These whoa. these immigrants are coming to Canada with significant amounts of money in their pocket. If you look at immigration policy, immigration policy highly favors educated and people with money, wealthy people as immigrants. So these people are not coming to 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 Canada penniless. They're coming with significant okay. sums of money. I sat here quietly and let you make your case, and I wrote down my response. You can do the same because you're missing my point. Yes, they may come with a nest egg, but at the end of the day, the economy, the GDP of Canada has got to grow to allow those people to be gainfully employed to truly have more demand in the space because you're making the argument that demand for housing is largely based on population growth. But I think if we go back, when liquidity has been added to the marketplace in Canada, that's increased the demand for housing as well. So there's a financial aspect to this too that can't be ignored. Yes, these people are going to cross the border with a really nice down payment. I absolutely give you that. But unless they can afford to fund the lifestyle that goes with it and they have meaningful jobs, that's going to be based on economic growth. So I think you set up a, a, a straw man to be knocked down. I don't think that you, you, you nailed this one. Yeah, it's, it's part of the equation because you can't grow your economy without people. So the people are going to show up first and then that's going to potentially allow the economy to grow. And we'll set aside productivity for a second because Canada's got some of the shittiest productivity in the history of productivity. But we'll set that aside. But unless these people can get gainfully employed, I don't see this as a straight line. More people equals higher prices for housing. I don't buy it. Well, I'm glad you brought up the GDP growth thing because you're right. The economy needs to grow. But what are your, what are your, and you, you, you argued against yourself because what are your components of GDP growth? It doesn't matter where it comes from. I mean, these people have to do something. I mean, we've hired five or 600 really smart people here on the East Coast to build boats. All right. So there you go. I've given five or 600 people meaningful jobs. They've got meaningful incomes. It's government spending, but government spending does create GDP. So I, I got the first five or 600 long down. I don't know where the other 4,000 or 499,500 jobs are going to come from. I mean, I don't know where all that's going to come from. So, so GDP growth is made up of really three things. Productivity, as you mentioned, which you can do without more people. Second one is what you'd call capital deepening. So more stuff for people to do the work with. The third, and perhaps the easiest to tackle, is more people. No. So 
You, you, There's three you, things in your equation. You're drawing a conclusion out of one of those things. But the other things are pro productivity. Okay, you can say that we're going to have negative productivity growth, but I just don't believe that. Productivity growth might be slow, but it's still going to be positive. And you the third- just, the, it, just stop saying negative growth. Contracting productivity. Decreased productivity. It's, it's a finance thing, Colin. Get, get with it. <laughs> The, the point is, the easiest way to drive GDP growth is through more people, in my view. 100%. I, I absolutely give you that. That is okay. a precursor. And that's Canada's strengths. That's one of the things that Canada does really, really yes. well for a whole bunch of reasons. I mean, you can't walk here. So we have a border that allows much better control over immigration. So we sure. have a, a ge geographic advantage that doesn't exist many places in the world. Yeah. So and we also have a culture that accepts it. We've got a bit off topic here, but I think half a million people a year immigrating is going to naturally add to, to, to GDP growth. And when you combine GDP growth plus more people, plus more money, plus not enough supply, that tells me that the price is, is going to appreciate. That is absolutely one of the, 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 the pressures at play. But again, it's got to be affordable. People are going to earn enough money to buy these places. You know, the houses get more expensive and they have money. They can sit there and take it's, it's a closed loop. So you, you admit houses are going to get more expensive. If more money shows up. Yes. <laughs> Absent money, you got a bunch more poor people. I, I can't believe you didn't refute it with uh, something about debt or uh, price to income ratios or anything like that. So. Uh, I'm a little bit disappointed in, in your, your, uh, pushback, Colin, but, um, I think you'll have, you'll have better luck with number two, maybe. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> disappointed in my, oh, kid. All right, fine. Keep going. What's your next one? Crypto related securities are going to be the security type of the next decades. And, oh. and hear, he, hear, hear me out. Hear me out. I'm not just right. talking about Bitcoin. I'm not just talking about cryptocurrencies. More broadly, I'm talking about blockchain transacted securities. So novel security types have come into the market and excelled before. Very recently, actually, look at exchange-traded funds. Exchange-traded funds really didn't exist. They did, but not in any mainstream way 20 years ago. And now they are proliferating like crazy and taking up a huge share of the market when you're looking at uh, investment products. And... The blockchain transacted securities, that, that type of, of transaction, that decentralized ledger that has some benefits, that reduction in intermediate, intermediation costs is real, it can reduce costs overall. We've seen something similar when you think of other peer-to-peer -peer type transactions with things like Uber, Airbnb, Turo. These things are becoming the norm. They're becoming the mainstay of our day-to-day -day life. And a, again, I'm not talking about cryptocurrency specifically, but just call it a crypto, crypto like security. That could be the next, the next thing for the next 10 years. I call it the next thing. Like, does that make it better than LeBron? I mean, you're kind of putting it on a little bit of a pedestal. Is it going to continue to evolve? Yes. But it's fundamental. It's philosophical weakness, decentralization. Everybody wants it. Nobody likes it because that's where you see some of the more major frauds and there's less oversight and there's votes to be gotten by 
having oversight complaints. So the whole argument against centralization, we have centralization on many things, beginning with a perceived need to protect the overall system and the keep the system functioning. And most of the countries that will have democracies, so most of the countries that will have votes that are at stake for you know, protecting society. The counterculture wars, which I think is largely where you're going with this decentralization thing, seeks to avoid or mitigate some of these things. And on its face, for a very good reason. You know, these frictions in the system that are put there by the system are frictions and absent malice, frictions get in the way. But the problem is as soon as you take out those frictions then all the bad actors show up. So I still think there's a fundamental flaw in the philosophy of decentralized processing. I don't think it negates it entirely, but I do think it severely limits what's going to be acceptable in, in modern society. For how things work. And we're only going to, I think what's going to happen is we tend to bump into these things. It's going to get put in the market as it already has. And we're already seeing a lot of pushback in the Bitcoin space. So the frauds that have happened and the losses that have happened and there's changes coming. I think that that's how this is going to evolve. We're going to continue to see new applications for this processing. We're going to continue to bump into its limitations and scale up and to something that's, that's sustainable. But I think the fundamental philosophical problem with the construct that people putting forward for this that needs to be reconciled. So here's where I'll, I'll meet you in the middle. I, I wouldn't argue that this is going to be a zero regulation type of decentralization. I think there's a way to have a decentralized ledger and the transaction occur in a decentralized way with oversight, with regulation. Now that might sound contradictory and it is. And I don't have a way to build that bridge today, but I think that's where we're going to arrive. And I think it's going to be industry and, and application specific. I think there's different things you're going to require different levels of intermediation. Because again, as much as we hate intermediation, there's an argument for it. You know, now it gets abused because you, you, you brought up ETFs. One of the reasons ETFs have gotten so popular is, is the, the market making, margins of market making for a lot of these institutions. So, you know, again, there's 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 a vested interest in the system of adopting that technology. There's a business model. Let's go back to that. There's a business model. And the business model has to exist in a regulated framework because, again, we live in democracies. So I don't, I'm not sure how this is going to evolve. I'm not ready to declare the thing. Uh, I'm not even sure what that means for comparing it to Tiger Woods, LeBron James, City Crosby. I'm not sure what, you know, which sports podcast you were using as an analogist there, but you know, I'm not sure it's the thing. I think it's going to be technology that exists. All right. Here's a different one for you. Changing courses entirely. And this one this is a pretty bold one. We will see outright deflation over the next decade. Two words to answer why. Artificial intelligence. So 15 years prior to 2021, inflation was, it was there, but it's been low for that entire period of time. So if you take out the last couple of years, inflation was extremely low for about a 15 year period of time, and perhaps even a little bit longer than that. And one of the big reasons why people say inflation was so low over that period of time is technology. And the fact that we have all this open source stuff, we have all this free technology that we use to enhance productivity and all that these, these days. And I think AI is perhaps even more profound on its impact to some of that stuff, especially its impact on labor. We were just talking before we started recording here about 
some of the mind-blowing stuff that AI is already doing in our day-to-day lives. And it's just a matter of time before that really gets applied. Automation, robotics, computers, that has been driving manufacturing costs down for years. AI is the next evolution of that. AI is going to make the supply of a lot of things exponentially higher. Some knowledge-based goods or services, if you want to call them that, will be in a nearly limitless supply with AI. And even some of the, the, the physical goods, AI is going to drive the supply that higher as it makes the manufacturing processes easier. This stuff is all open source today. So it's not even stuff that we're paying for. It's making our lives way easier. Higher supply of all this stuff that I'm talking about. What does that mean? That means prices go down. Maybe. So let's, 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 let's walk back and keeping in mind that this is up. Let's walk back to other technologies that have come forward, like cars. Yeah, cars are going to make it so much easier for everybody to do everything. All the horse people are going to be out of business. Cotton jets, railways, the original computers. I think if you actually plot all of this, what's going to happen? If AI is as successful as people are, are thinking it's going to be, and right now we don't know. Like, it, there's no way that we know this. What's going to happen is it could lead to a fairly substantial increase in consumption or quality of life in ways we don't understand yet. So it's going to make things possible. It's going to make, it's going to free up time. It's going to free up capital. It's going to free up interest and people will move on to the next thing. Because again, even talking about inflation is a nebulous thing. You know, to track inflation back the last 15, 1600 years, it, a hundred years ago, we weren't buying computers and TVs and you know, those things that we can consume today. So it's a financial construct that doesn't always line up with how economies are working as we go through all the various revolutions we've gone through, be it technology, be it internet, uh, be it self-driving cars. But this AI is ubiquitous. It, it is going to affect a lot of different things. But I, I'm not sure that the complete knockout effect to that is going to be, we're going to do, use exactly the same services and just pay less for them. I think it's going to cause new services to come so I think AI is going to be fighting against itself. You know, you're going to have two lawyers in a quarter, both using AI. Yeah, I don't think that's more efficient. It may even take longer. So I don't know that we know how this is all going to play out. I do think it's going to make some things less expensive for sure. And if I'm optimistic, I hope that it's going to send in consumer. Everybody begins to enjoy, by some description, a standard of living. Which is at the end of the day, what you want to see from technology, but you're drawing the conclusion that economics are going to slow down with that. So I'm not sure you give people more time or leisure time, the ability to do more work. I sat at a county desk when the very first mainframe computers came on board and we started replacing accountants. Didn't replace accountants. I just walked into my office and I had a three foot stack of paper on my desk. I had to go through that the computer generated. It didn't replace me. It just turned me into a paper sorter. And there was not a reduction in the accounting staff when the original mainframe computer showed up. So you could look back and say, yeah, the computer's way more efficient. It's going to replace all these people. Or, or we're not going to quite know how to use it. And it's actually going to create more work for people. And we're not going to expect things in real time. We're going to expect more data. We're going to expect more information. It makes better decision making. Because it's a competitive marketplace. If I can get A to Z, with AI, ooh, now I've got time. It's going to the next alphabet. 
like, let's do the next thing. That's where the competition becomes so just in time manufacturing, just in time processing. How quickly, how quickly can we get at this? Because again, it's, that's the human condition where you're seeking to keep driving the rocket. You know? So I don't think it's a straight line. I don't think you're wrong. I don't think you're right, but I, I would not be confident that we're going to, this is going to cause the equation. I think one of the bigger pushes from a deflationary impact has been the modernization of places like India, Pakistan, and China. With all that labor coming, all the transfer of marketing into those or manufacturing into those countries. I think that was hugely deflation because North America likes to buy salad spinners. I don't know why we like to buy salad spinners, but we do. Yeah. They can make them really cheap overseas. So I think that that's also in something maybe I don't know if that's getting more right. But do those do those countries have continuing Population growth that are going to continue to be a deflationary pressure on the economy. That's how, how much globalization comes back if it does. Is that a great, answer, great, great counter. Great counter. A plus, A plus counter. Oh, okay. Oh, good. <laughs> I won one. <laughs> There's no winning and losing here, Colin. We're all winners. Let's go. All right. Last one here. We are nowhere near a recession. A recession won't happen in 2023. It won't happen in 2024. It may not even happen in 2025. We have unemployment at or near all-time lows. We have inflation coming down kind of naturally, kind of with the interest rate hikes, but inflation coming down, bottom line, it means hikes won't have to go up. Interest rate hikes won't have to be that much more from where they are today. And with the disaster that COVID was for disruption in the economy and supply chains and labor forces, that is still working itself out. And that working itself out alone will be a disinflationary force. Interest rates are higher, yes, but they're bending but not breaking anything yet. The banking system seems to be on pretty solid footing despite a few issues in the US. Housing is holding up well in North America. People are spending less, but that's the intent. They're still spending at a decent clip. Economic growth hasn't been on a straight line, but it is still ticking up and it's ticking up even a little bit more so recently. So this is why I say we won't have a recession for at least a couple of years. Tell me why I'm wrong. I think there's maybe a 20% chance you're right. Uh, this, this could be the soft landing, but the argument against it is I don't think we have seen the full effect of the interest rates to this point. You're still seeing financing get more expensive. You're still seeing things need to be renewed. You know, and it's, it's seeping into the, the, the collective minds of consumers. So, and that, that's truly what's going to drive this because if, if, if the continuing renewal of various financing things continues to ripple through the system. And that affects confidence to a point that people pull back. I still think that that's a very real probability and even likely to some degree. Now, it's a large enough magnitude to cause a recession. Yeah, that's where I'm giving you 20%. Maybe it isn't. I don't think it's, at this point, I haven't seen any evidence here. Nothing's convinced me that it's imminent or it's going to be dire. But you know, there's still some staff working its way to the system. And again, the central banks have admittedly come out and said that they've gotten it wrong a number of times now. So they're, they're not confident. Yeah, they have way more information. 
and way more time to spend time with people. So I think this is more of a confidence thing, and I still think that there's a likelihood or a probability that people are going to see enough things that it's going to affect their confidence as to whether that's large enough magnitude to slow things down to tip us into a recession. I'm, I'm not confident of either side of this one. How's that? I'm going to score, I'll score this one a draw. You're so diplomatic. <laughs> so ambivalent. <laughs> Sorry, I have to be more entertaining. Oh, you're wrong. Oh my gosh. Where's my, where's my sound effect? <laughs> no, that, that's my role in this podcast. That's my role here. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So consumer confidence is still reasonably strong. It's waned a little bit over the last year, but as interest rates have, have started to perhaps crest, perhaps, uh, it seems like there's a bit more stability on the consumer confidence side of things and the consumer spending side of things as well. And that would be the argument here is that it's been a tough 12, 18 months for people dealing with inflation, but Again, they seem to be in a fairly decent spot, built up some savings through the uh, the pandemic time. We can thank the governments for those. And they're not doing too bad. It's harder, but it's not at a point of, of breaking down and, and uh, dissolving yet. Well, and I think you can only stay upset so long. Like you can only worry so long and then you get on with your life. And I think that's part of what, so it's complacency. <laughs> well, it's, in a way, you know, if if there's no solution, there can be no problem. I mean, we've been waiting for a year or more for this imminent recession that's going to destroy all of us, and it's not manifesting itself. It doesn't. The jobs numbers still look good. GDP's still going up. Inflation's coming down. There's no. You're not seeing anything to really support the level of anxiety that was out there. And after a while, it's, just, it's too much work walking around that anxious. So. Yeah, okay, whatever, I'll stop worrying about it, which feeds into the confidence, which actually becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. If people walk around confident, then maybe we'll be fine. So I, we, we could find a way out of this. Well, this is one, some of these are going to be hard to, to prove or disprove in the near term, but this is one where we'll have an answer within the next several years, at least. So we can revisit this one day. We all have to write it down and, and you'll grade me 10 years from now when we uh, actually see how all this stuff's played out. Well, I grade you all the time. I just don't show you the reward pay. Don't you know in BC, they've gone away from uh, from letter grades? So that's well, it's a, it's a bit of a faux pas. Are, are they going to replace it with dinosaurs or something? I didn't hear what they're replacing it with. I don't know. Number of star stickers or something. Uh, who knows? Smarter people than me, I have to believe. Smarter people than me are coming up with these systems. So. We have to hope. All right. So was that was that your list? That's my list. Oh, I thought you were going to come out with gold or something. Maybe we can see that one for next time. You know what? I really tried really hard to come up with a gold one, and I, I just couldn't. <laughs> I, I couldn't even. I couldn't even come up with a well, well thought out, uh, well supported argument for gold. That there, there's. So to me, so I was looking at a hundred year history of the price of gold recently, just to, you know, this is what I do in my free time. And it really goes in long cycles. Like it'll go 20 years and be flat. Then it will spike up 300% over 10 years. And then it will be down for the next 40 years. And then it will go up a thousand percent over the next 10 years. But I haven't been able to ever find a convincing argument for why it does one thing or another. So my only argument for gold 
being a great investment from here would be that it it just could have one of those runs. It just could have one of those runs where it just, you know, goes up exponentially over a 10 year period of time. And I, that's as much as I can come up with for it. So I'm sorry, Colin, I didn't know I disappointed you by not having that one in there. Well, I don't think you understand show business. Like you're supposed to get dressed up and put on a mask and start slamming the table and just scream up gold, gold, gold. I mean, you know, that's entertaining for people to listen to. This is, this is a little bit more thoughtful than that. I hope. <laughs> oh, it was, it was. Yeah. And hopefully if people found it entertaining, but no, no, I'm still waiting. Uh, and it was funny. Somebody during recently called me and I'm not liking gold. And I said, sure, tell me wrong. put together some kind of argument. Every time I've asked somebody and I, I go talk to gold bugs because that's the thing. And I keep thinking one of these days, somebody's going to put together a coherent argument. Yeah, and I, I'm still looking. Yeah, it's it's shown the the best argument that I've seen is it has shown historically to be a diversifier as part of a portfolio. It it tends to do well at different times, and you just don't think you really know what those times are going to be. So my my only argument for do you invest in gold? Well, five, throw five percent of your portfolio in gold and keep it there permanently. You'll probably do just okay. But I just think there's better ways to diversify still. So. Um, not for me, not for me. I, I couldn't even get there, even, uh, squint in my eyes a little bit. <laughs> All right, fine. So, so maybe we need to do a follow-up podcast and stuff. There's so far out there, we couldn't even argue with it. Yeah, you got it. I'll work on that this weekend. <laughs> All right. Thanks for tuning in and, uh, click follow, subscribe, and, uh, send us your feedback. If you have anything you want to hear, uh, we'd love to hear from you. Thanks, Colin. Thanks. If you're breaking a sweat trying to figure out what your financial advisor is talking about, you're not getting the service you need. You probably hate trying to get an answer from them, but you also think moving your accounts will be a headache, and it might be. But working with DontRockTheBoatWealthPlanning.com or .ru isn't exactly stress-free, is it? Call us. We will demystify the world for you. Vericant Capital Management Inc. is a registered portfolio manager in all. Vericant Capital Management Inc. is a registered portfolio manager in all of Canada except Manitoba. So sorry, Manitoba. Nothing in this podcast should be considered as a solicitation or recommendation to buy or sell a particular security. Statements made by the portfolio managers are intended to illustrate their approach and are meant for information and entertainment purposes only. Opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the portfolio manager only and do not necessarily reflect those of I Private Wealth Inc. I Private Wealth Inc. is a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and the Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada. I Private Wealth is a trademark and business name under which I Private Wealth Inc. operates. This should not be construed as legal, tax, or accounting advice. This podcast has been prepared for information purposes only. The tax information provided in this podcast is general in nature and each client should consult with their own tax advisor, accountant, and lawyer before pursuing any strategy described herein, as each client's individual circumstances are unique. We've endeavored to ensure the accuracy of the information provided at the time that it was written. However, should the information in this podcast be incorrect or incomplete, or should the law or its interpretation change after the date of this document, the advice provided may be incorrect or inappropriate. There should be no expectation that the information will be updated, supplemented, or revised, whether as a result of new information, changing circumstances, future events, or otherwise. We are not responsible for errors contained in this podcast or to anyone who relies on the information contained in this podcast. Please consult your own legal and tax advisor.